banks, depending on your terminology, to report on the probability of a flood. That gave the residents two or three days to prepare for the water, which the farmers had determined would surely rise. After the necessary phone calls were made, the news burning up the wires, two dozen anxious men, my usually gregarious neighbors, set their faces to stone and hauled load after load of sandbags to dam the weak banks of the young river. Their sons and daughters, including Marcus and I, watched from their porches. Some day, we would be the ones to haul the sand. We needed to know how it was done. The men labored silently in a long line, passing the weighty bags from man to man to man, like a crew of sailors loading a ship with provisions. The last man in the line threw the bag on the top of the last bag until the stack was man-high. They prepared the riverbed itself first, adding height and breadth to the banks. Then the crew filled the eroded hollows between the houses of the little riverside hamlet that we called home. After that was done, they helped each other secure their own homes until every home was ready to receive the rising water. Most folks could see the river from their porches. Everyone could smell it. When a flood was coming, an ancient stench of mud and fish and scum hung in the air, the scent of the river amplified, swollen and ready to burst. The flood itself, though, the water's tipping point, always arrived in the middle of the night. When this one came, our phone rang around midnight on Friday. My dad put on his waders and sloshed over to his pickup truck. He pulled two more sandbags from the bed of the truck and hoisted one onto each shoulder, looking like Atlas in the moonlight to my wide eyes. And then he put them on top of the line of bags near our front door. For good measure, I guessed. Though, I had the feeling that if the water got that high, sandbags wouldn't much matter. In a question-and-answer session after reading aloud his story, On the San Juan, Ron Carlson addressed the topic of water shortage in the American Southwest in a way that only a writer can, with personification. You get the sense that the heat wants to hurt you. It was all he really needed to say. He was talking about the violence of nature. Violence like the hot, slapping hand of the sun. Violence like cracked earth and scorched vegetation. Of prolonged thirst and hunger. I thought of the Kankakee and its opposite problem. I thought of the river that taunted us each year as it crept up and spilled over its human-made boundaries toward our homes. I thought of drowning, a swifter aggression than drought. A flood was a call to the strongest and ablest among our tribe of river folk, but it never stopped anything important. Not school, not work. Definitely not poker games. The beer had been stocked early that week. 
On Saturday, families tended their properties for most of the day. They secured their porch furniture with chains and ropes, waiting out the rise, periodically lowering the end of a two-by-four into the water to see how much it had gained on them. Half inch by half inch. On Sunday, a couple of the men came to our house by canoe and tied it to the handrail with a mud-caked yellow rope. The other men trekked through the marsh in waist-high rubber waders, hauled themselves over the sandbag barricade, and stripped down to their clothes on the porch, which had become a peninsula, surrounded by the river's water. Once inside the house, they pulled apples and boxes of raisins from their overall pockets for me and my brother, smiling, as if nothing were out of the ordinary. They handed over the treats on their way to the card table, while my mom hung their waiters.